Peace to you. Welcome to The Naked Truth. We are going to pick up where we left off in the book of 1 Kings. We've made it to chapter 11. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. So Solomon liked the variety from all the different uh, nations of people around him. Um, women from them. And though it's not mentioned here, m many of those are forbidden. You're according to what we've read in the scriptures previously, you're not supposed to marry or um, let any of those people join into the congregation. And yet you see the wisest king in the Bible, uh, you know, obviously other than Jesus, um, did exactly that. And um, also that also lets us know that whole idea of one man and one woman is what the Bible says marriage is supposed to be, is also a lie. That's not what the Bible says at all. Solomon, from what it reads, had hundreds of wives, also side pieces, concubines, and many times the forefathers, the patriarchs, also enjoyed prostitution, and none of it is condemned. But in modern times, Bible thumpers condemn all of that stuff, even though it's not Bible-based. Verse 2. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. So it is mentioned in this chapter, the fact that it is supposedly forbidden by what we've read before in the scriptures. And yet the he's indulging in just that. And not only that, um, that same thing happened in Jesus' lineage. Uh, at least, you know, the bloodline of, uh, attributed to Jesus in the Bible. Same thing. Uh, interracial marriages with forbidden uh, people, foreigners, and also prostitutes in Jesus's own um, family tree. We read about those previously. Um, if you don't remember or have not, or if you're new to reading along with me, I suggest look back on The Naked Truth, the one titled Bible Top Ten. And you'll be seeing a lot of surprising things about what Bible thumpers will say and what the Bible actually says. Um, and you'll see that a lot of people are out there lying to people, fooling people, and actually covering what, what the truth is for whatever reason, a variety of reasons. But back to this. So you see Solomon had lots of different wives and he's disobeying what the scriptures say you're supposed to do as far as marrying foreigners. Um, yet he's still prosperous. Uh, the most prosperous in history, according to the Bible and many other resources. Verse 3, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So he, again, this ridiculous idea that for people to thump a Bible and say marriage is supposed to be one man and one woman, when that's not what, it, and they'll use the Bible as their justification. You see here, He's had hundreds of them, and not just them, side pieces too. That's basically what concubines are, and not condemned. So norms, like we've read before, change. They change with the times, and they change with society. Norms are not the same thing as commandments. The commandments were just those 10. These different norms and statutes and ordinances, those things are religion, and those things came along later, and those things are not part of the Ten Commandments. Um, but again... People believe what you want to believe. Verse 4. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord 
his God, as was the heart of his father David. So the narrator here of this book, First Kings, is not being completely honest because David's heart wasn't all that loyal. David did plenty of things, just like we all do, that aren't all that all that together righteous or kosher. Uh, David did them too, um, such as adultery, such as murder, uh, such as covetousness. He did all those things. We've read about them. Um, yet here, it's saying that he was so loyal to um, the Lord. And Lord here is still being translated from the word or name Jehovah, just as a side note. Um, and um, it's saying that Solomon was not as faithful. Um, once he got old, his wives basically uh, had his nose wide open to start serving other gods, entities, deities. Um, what's it called? Um, idolatry. Verse 5, but Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. So um, the narrator here is naming off some of the other deities, entities that um, Solomon also uh, worshipped. Besides Jehovah, who's being called the Lord in English, he also worshipped some of these other entities. Ashtoreth is a female deity. Uh, Milcom is another uh, male deity, but from another religion. So, uh, but Solomon, again, was worshiping all these different things. And like I read, said in the previous reading of the previous chapter, other resources outside of the Bible say that Solomon even practiced um, uh, witchcraft or black magic, if you prefer. Or he was also involved in demonics and the um, and accessing and using them. Some resources even believe um, that that's how he was able to build the temple. He used supernatural um, means of, of, of getting the demons to do the work for him so that it was actually a supernatural element to the building of the temple beyond just the uh, Lord that Solomon was um, brought up with. Verse 6, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. So again, the narrator is sort of uh, painting that picture that uh, David was much more faithful than Solomon, though, like I just said, that's not actually how it reads in the scriptures. Um, verse 7, Then Solomon built a high place for, the, for Shemash, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. So those are the different deities that the people, the nations, the areas around uh, Solomon's area worship and they're outside of the Bible too you can find out more information about those different deities uh, Shemash and Molech for instance uh, but also Ashtoreth and um, Asherah and some of the others that have been mentioned throughout the scriptures so far um, apparently Solomon uh, worshipped many of those different deities he was not faithful to just one he was not a monotheistic believer he had many different gods uh, that he worshipped, even though, it, according to the scriptures, the one God of his own, the Jehovah God of that Lord, is the one who prospered and prospered him and got him where he is, was. Verse 8, and he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the narrator here seems to be attributing Solomon's idolatry to the fact that 
he had all these different foreign wives and that um, instead of those wives converting to his religion um, and worshiping the same entity, deity, he's worshiping Jehovah. Um, at least that seems who it usually was. Um, instead, he's going over into the beliefs of their religion. Um, just like when people in modern times intermarry with other religions, say like Muslims and Christians or Jewish people and Christians or whatever the mix may be. Um, that's what's happened. And Solomon is picking up on their religions and they're rubbing off on him. Um, and almost certainly his religion was rubbing off on them because look how the Queen of Sheba talked about how his Lord has been so good to him, implying she has a different Lord, entity, deity that she worships, yet she recognized and even, like we read, had a child, Menelik, uh, from her, Makeda, the Queen of Sheba, um, who had a dynasty from Solomon that lasted up until the 1970s, 1974, if I remember right. Uh, so that's in modern history that that connection has lasted um, within the last 50 years. Um, yet, again, Bible-thumping religions ignore all of that because the interracial element, the fact that he's Jewish, which doesn't imply that he's white. Although that's what people like to do, whitewash him as people in the Bible, uh, all being white. It's not the case. If you just consider the area they're in, the Middle East makes them already more like, more than likely to have a darker complexion. And then the fact that they were in Africa for four plus for more than four centuries makes it even more likely that they're even darker. And then the fact that the Queen of Sheba is Ethiopian. Um, or Yemenite, if you believe that version of the legend of her lineage. Um, either way, dark-skinned people, and yet religions, church, don't talk about that at all. It gets whitewashed and try to make everyone believe that everyone was homogenized in their appearance, when that's almost certainly not the case. That's what's actually racist. Verse 8, and he did likewise for all his foreign wives. Okay, so um, not just one or two. He had 700 wives, so he set up places of worship for all of them, and he was wealthy enough to be able to do that. Maybe not all of them. Well, did it say all of them? Yeah, it says all his foreign wives. So he had it like that to be able to set up places of worship or dedicate it to all the different gods that the many different wives that he had worshipped. Verse 9, so the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. So now the narrator is saying that that's ticked the Lord off. The fact that the Lord went through the effort of appearing to him twice, not once, but twice. And even then, he hasn't been faithful to following the entity, deity, Jehovah, faithfully, even though he's gotten two visits. Um, and then like we've read before, that contradicts what the New Testament says about no one having ever seen God at any time, never seen his form, never heard his voice, is what the New Testament reads. And yet you see here, it's saying that Solomon got more than one visit from him, and Solomon's not even the first. We um, read previously where other people in the Bible got visits with the Lord, had conversations with the Lord, and in one case, even physically wrestled with the Lord, and even beat the Lord in a wrestling match, if you want to believe that. But again, Believe what you want, just reading what's there. So uh, verse 10, and had commanded him 
concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. So the narrator is letting us know that Solomon has been idolatrous in his seeking other entities, other gods, and worshiping them rather than being faithful to just the one singular Jehovah entity as his God. Verse 11, therefore the Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. So the um, now it's saying, the narrators, it's saying that apparently Solomon got a message that for his unfaithfulness and idolatry and worshiping those other entities, now his kingdom is going to be lost and be given to his servant is going to be the new king, apparently. Verse 12, nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of your hand, out of the hand of your son. So um, according to what the narrator is saying here, the um, Solomon's gotten another message from the Lord. And the message is, you've been unfaithful, so you're going to lose the kingdom. But I'm not going to take it from you. I'm instead going to take it from your son. And um, and then the kingdom will be lost to you. Um, out of faithfulness to King David, the um, words that were uh, the prophecy given to him. Verse 13. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I've chosen. So um, Solomon's being assured that he won't lose all of the tribes um, that he's being um, been um, set as king over. He'll still get one tribe. That'll be the one tribe he'll still get to be um, king over, but all the other tribes are going to be torn from him. Um, and most likely, I'm guessing, I think it's Judah. That's the tribe that will still be faithful to Solomon, uh, whereas all the other tribes are going to be gone. Verse 14, now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king of Edom. So now, um, other nations are starting to rise up against Solomon and um, presumably lead to the division and the loss of his kingdom, even though he's been so exalted with riches. Verse 15, for it happened when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain after he had killed every male in Edom. So now the narrator is reflecting back on an episode of King David when he was warring with the uh, areas around him, Edom specifically. And one other thing about Edom, modern preachers, some of them will um, try and lead people to believe that Edom, because it translates to red, is talking about Russia. It's not talking about Russia. It's talking about an area that later became known as Idumea in Greek in the New Testament. But it's the same Edom that's being talked about here. And it has nothing to do with Russia. It has to do with the area surrounding the Jordan River in that same area that's considered the promised land, the holy land in modern times. Nothing to do with Russia. All of that is just propaganda. Um, but again, believe what you want, but it's clear. Edom is not Russia. It's talking about the Edom right there in the Middle East. Verse 16, because for six months, Joab remained there with all Israel until he had cut down every male in Edom. 
So again, it's reflecting back on the previous administration, King David's, and one of his generals, his main general, Joab, and how he uh, made war against that area, Edom. Verse 17, the Hadad fled to go to Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. Hadad was still a little child. So um, uh, the, he was a child when King David was uh, reigning. Now that King David is gone and Solomon is in his place, Hadad's grown up, but he grew up in exile after he left his homeland in Edom uh, for Africa, Egypt for safety, sought asylum there. And that's another thing that gets whitewashed. Again and again and again, the people who are looked to for help are Africans, the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, all in Africa, uh, uh, and yet seem to get very, very little credit for that or even mentioned for that um, in uh, modern churches and in religion in general. It gets whitewashed. It's, it's really, really sick. Verse 18, then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house, appointed food for him, and gave him land. So uh, when that when he was on the run, he found asylum in Africa and uh, was taken care of, well taken care of. And I don't say these things about white supremacy as a statement against white people. I love white people. I love people of all colors and and um, and uh, appearances. Uh, it's the white supremacy that's disgusting, that's sick, that's ugly. The whitewashing that's associated with white supremacy that should turn anybody who's interested in truth off because the truth shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter what color people are um, if it's the truth. Just let the truth speak for itself instead of... Um, uh, I, that's that whole thing about CRT in modern times too, to erase anything and whitewash anything that has to do with uh, black contributions to society is really, really sick. But you see it even gets white, it even gets black people to contribute to it. But a whole other subject, verse 19. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh so that he gave him as wife the sister of his own wife, that is the sister of Queen Tapanes. So um, Hadad, when he was in, in uh, exile, growing up in Africa, he was taken care of and even given a, a, a wife, a royal wife. The king's wife's sister was given to him as wife. So he now too is royalty. Verse 20, then the sister of Tapanes bore him Garabath, his son, whom Tapanese weaned in Pharaoh's house, and probably Genabath, was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. So as always, please forgive me if I mispronounce any of these, um, but Genabath sounds a lot like a woman's name, but it's saying it's a man, a son, but you know, that's again, just goes with norms and times because lots of different names that um, might now be considered women's names, Courtney, Lindsay, uh, Misha are all at one point men, uh, men's names. Um, in the Old South, Courtney, Lindsay, Robin, those are all men's names. Misha is a, uh, is a man's name in the Bible. And yet people get on their high horses, thumping their Bibles, and get all upset over the so-called gender bending. When in reality, 
it's not like that. The truth is uh, just not like that. But again, believe what you want. But it's saying that he was brought up in Pharaoh's house. So he's brought up with royalty, even though he's in exile and sought asylum there. Verse 21. So when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. So now Hadad had that asylum in Africa, and now he's told uh, the people who've taken good care of him, even given him a wife, royal wife, and made him royalty, basically, that now he's ready to go back home to his own homeland. Uh, now that the people who were uh, after him are dead, David and Joab, the opposing army that basically drove them into exile. Verse 22, then Pharaoh said to him, what have you lacked with me that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, nothing, but do let me go anyway. So um, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, that's who he is, is asking a dad, well, what is it that's gone wrong here that you don't want, that you're not content to just stay here and live large as royalty that you want to go back to your homeland? Um, but he's answered him nothing. You didn't do anything wrong, but still he wants to go home. Verse 23, and God raised up another adversary against him, Rezin, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord, Hadidazer, king of Zobah. So now it's saying, uh, the narrator is saying that it's the Lord, it's God that's raising up all these ops against Solomon. Again, because of his unfaithfulness, his idolatry and worshiping other entities, other deities, instead of just the one singular uh, uh, deity, Jehovah, so that that's why he's having all that, those his enemies rising up against him from these other nations. Verse 24, so he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders when David killed those of Zobah, and they went to Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus. So one of the enemies that's been raised up against him has now um, gathered him a crowd, a crew, and gone to Syria and is reigning there. Verse 25, he was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon besides the trouble that Hadad caused, and he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. So now two powerful enemies have been, have been raised up against Solomon and it's being attributed to him being idolatrous, not being faithful to one religion. Verse 26, then Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zareda, whose mother, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. So now he's got um, opposition from the outside. Now he's even got ops from the inside being raised up against him. Um, and this one of his servants, and remember, that's what the prophecy was given to him, that his kingdom will be taken from him and given to his servant. So might be this one. Let's see. Verse seven, 27. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the millow and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. So Solomon did some construction. He's even repaired Jerusalem. Um, some of the damages to it, and this is what's leading up to the rebellion of Jeroboam in his own kingdom. Verse 28, the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, 
made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. So just like in modern times, we have a department of labor. He's uh, Solomon's department of labor is being headed up by this one, Jeroboam. Uh, and it's not going to turn out good. In verse 29, now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way, and he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the fields. So now Jeroboam is on a journey, on a mission, he's on the move, and he's running to what's called a prophet. The prophet is basically just like we've read before, well, they're called seers because they could see into the future. They could see into another dimension. They generally had contact with the supernatural. Oftentimes it was what we think of as God, but many times it was just in touch with other entities, energies, powers that they, uh, like magicians or a, a, a fortune teller, a soothsayer, a palm reader, they had that kind of power, a medium, a spiritist. It was like that. Um, many times all considered under the umbrella of prophet because they had supernatural knowledge or at least access to it. So that's what Ahijah is. And now he's met, uh, he, that's who he's run into on the road. Verse 30, then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. So um, Jeroboam is wearing a new outfit. And he's running to this prophet, Ahijah, and Ahijah has taken his new clothes and torn it up into 12 pieces. You can imagine that would probably tick somebody off. Verse 31, and he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to you. So um, he's torn Jeroboam's clothes um, but it wouldn't tick him off because it's a prophecy that he's laying out for him. Um, he's saying that just like the clothes was, his clothes were torn into pieces, he's letting him know it's all a prophecy that the kingdom is going to be torn away from Solomon, his king, the one who's in power now, King David's descendant who's ruling over the land. It's going to be ripped away from him just like those clothes were ripped. And the majority of them are going to go to now um, Jeroboam, but um, a small portion are going to still remain loyal to Solomon. Um, verse 32, but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. So um, the prophecy is being given to Jeroboam that he's going to get all these other tribes to rule over them. But the one tribe is going to get to stay on Solomon's side to uh, be faithful to the prophecy given to King David and King Solomon in the days when they were faithful, since both fell away from being faithful. But most um, presently at this time, Solomon in marrying all those foreign women and falling into the idolatry of worshiping the same entities that they worshiped. Verse 33, because they've forsaken me. And worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Shamash, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes, and keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. So again, 
the reason for the kingdom being torn away from Solomon is being attributed to the fact that he's been unfaithful in his worship. Verse 34, however, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I've made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. Ish, he did sometimes, and you know, just like all, like everyone sins, David was faithful sometimes, sometimes he wasn't. Because one of the commandments is thou shalt not kill, yet he set up uh, one of his faithful soldiers to be killed. Then he also, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery is one of the commandments. He committed adultery with the man's wife, then had him killed. So um, he's faithful sometimes, but he wasn't completely faithful as the narrator seems to be trying to say that the Lord told Jeroboam David was and that that faithfulness is the reason. Jerusalem will still remain with the David lineage, but the other tribes will be torn away from Solomon's kingdom. Verse 35. So it, this seems to be the prophecy of the tribes being split in two, whereas they were all considered Israelites, Jewish, uh, Jewish nation. Um, the Israelites had, up until this time, now there's the division that there's going to be the house of Israel of all those tribes. And then there's the singular house of Judah, that one singular tribe. This is basically where the split becomes um, official. Verse 35, but I will take, or at least the prophecy of it becomes official. Verse 35, but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, 10 tribes. So again, that's where the division is coming in and the 10 tribes being given to Jeroboam and taken away from uh, Solomon's descendant, not Solomon himself. Uh, it's his actions that led to it, but it's his descendant that's going to suffer from it. So it's it, that also reminds me of what we read previously about the contradiction of um, generational curses and such. Some um, where some preachers will say cling to one part of the Bible, like in Jeremiah, where it says um, no more will that proverb about the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge and that instead the person who eats the sour grapes is their teeth that will be set on edge meaning the person who does the sin is the one that's going to pay for it not that their descendants will have to pay for it well the, obviously that's not the case or at least that's just one more contradiction because here you see the one who's committing the sin uh was solomon uh, but he's not going to pay for it instead his son is going to have to pay for it in losing the kingdom just like with david He's the one committed a sin, but it's his son who ends up having to pay for it. In fact, in the loss of the kingdom, in the loss of his child that he had with um, Bathsheba, the woman who was married to the man he had murdered. Um, and yet all of that sort of just gets uh, swept under the rug and overlooked and churches pretend like it's not contradiction. It's very much contradictory, um, but it is what it reads. So we're just reading it. Um verse 36 and to his son i will give one tribe that my servant david may always have a lamp before me in jerusalem the city which i've chosen for myself to put my name there so um the jeroboam is being reassured that even though he's going to get the majority of those tribes to rule over them the one tribe area Jerusalem is still going to remain under the control of the lineage of David in faithfulness to the prophecy given to King David when he was alive. 
Verse 37, so I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart's desires and you shall be king over Israel. So now those other 10 tribes are going to be called uh, Israel at this point. And the one singular tribe that's going to remain under uh, King David, King Solomon and that lineage are going to be known as the kingdom of Judah. Verse 38, then it shall be if you heed all that I command you. Walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did. Then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. So now, even though we just saw where um, he's saying David's going to be given, David was promised that enduring house and um, it's going to be fulfilled in the fact that the one singular tribe, Judah, is still going to remain under the control of his descendants. Now Jeroboam is being given a similar promise that if he remains faithful, an enduring house will be set up for him a dynasty. Verse 39, and I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. So now um, vengeance, it seems, is what's being determined for uh, David's family tree, his lineage, because of the unfaithfulness and idolatry but that it won't last, that um, it's just a temporary punishment, basically. Verse 40, Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam, Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So once again, Egypt, Africa to the rescue, the people needing help, they flee to Africa and get that asylum that they were seeking there. Um, and just until Solomon is dead is what Jeroboam is doing. He's fled for his life and found that safety there um, until the death of Solomon. Verse 41, now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? So um, now the narrator is reflecting on, it seems to me, a lost book. Uh, of scriptures that talk about the different things that Solomon did, the acts of Solomon, uh, not in the Bible, um, but apparently well known and circulating up until the time of when First Kings was documented. Verse 42, in the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. So um, Solomon uh, had four decades of his kingdom lasting over all the tribes, not just the one. Um, and then 43, then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So you got Jeroboam in this chapter being given the promise that he's going to reign over um, the majority of the tribes. Um, but that one tribe, one uh, area, Jerusalem, would still remain under the control of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who's now the heir to the throne, now that Solomon has died. Um, that was the last verse in this chapter. That's where we're in this reading. Thank you again for joining me for The Naked Truth. Hope it's a blessing for you, and I hope you join me again. God willing, I'll see you next time. Stay safe. I love you. Peace be with you.